G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. When you see strange things happening all around you, don't complain, but ask, what is God teaching me through this? Don't become bewildered when you see all that or filled with doubt. You must trust that when God delays the answer to prayer, it is because He's dealing with selfishness among His own people that God is dealing with a national and corporate and individual sins, that God is purifying His church, that God wants to prepare His church for great and mighty things, that God is working both judgment and righteousness for His bigger purpose. Welcome to Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Most everyone experiences seasons of being overwhelmed by the sound of silence in response to prayers, feeling that words are hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down, only to hit us in the head. Today on Leading the Way, a look at when prayers are unanswered or delayed. Practical words from Dr. Yusuf's series, Examining Journeys of People in the Bible, as they navigate their walk with God. If you can, open to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, as Dr. Yusuf begins today's Leading the Way. Now turn with me, if you haven't already, to chapter 3 of the book of Habakkuk. In the first two verses of that prayer, chapter 3, he said, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deed, O Lord. Renew them that is, the deeds of God, the work of God. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, you have to understand the background of the book of Habakkuk to understand this prayer, particularly chapter 3. You really have to understand the message of that book. In fact, you'll never understand chapter 3, powerful as it is, quoted in the New Testament by many New Testament writers, without understanding the entire book of Habakkuk. So I'll give you a summary of the message of the book of Habakkuk. He began, chapter 1, he was praying for a revival. He's praying for a revival. Now, this is a wonderful prayer. This is the kind of prayer that every believer should be praying. Doesn't God want a revival in his church? <laughs> Isn't Habakkuk praying according to the will of God? Yes. Then why on earth God does not want to answer this prayer? <laughs> why is he refusing to answer Habakkuk's prayer? Habakkuk himself is baffled as to why God is not answering his prayer. And I'm sure some of you at some point in your life, you were baffled why God is not answering you. And he said, Lord, I've been crying to you. I've been praying to you. Why are you not answering me? And it's happening here. God, why are my prayers going unanswered? Lord, why is the answer to my prayer being delayed? What 
can be more glorifying to you, Lord, than to pray for a spiritual awakening in Israel, the apple of your eye, the people that you have chosen from before the foundation of the earth. What can be more great than to see Israel having a spiritual awakening? I want to stop here and let you and remind you of the spiritual condition of Israel at that time. You see, idolatry was rampant in Israel at that time. Sin was rampant in the church. Spiritual life gave way to humanistic endeavors. Uh, Their worship was mixed with compromise in their life. The people's commitment to Yahweh was half-hearted to say the least. The love for Yahweh was cold, to put it mildly. Oh, they went to church. They went to church. But they worshiped prosperity and selfishness. They believed in God, but they worshiped the self. They became tolerant of other religions that they brought them into the church. They were so tolerant of abomination practices that they placed it in the pulpits. So, to say, this man is praying for a revival, you would say that is most desperately needed. That prayer is absolute necessity to pray for a revival in the heart of Israel at this time. You agree, right? But finally, when God answers Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I've heard your prayer. I've heard you. And I will answer your prayer, but not now. Not yet. Oh, first... I'm going to be sending Israel into exile. Oh, come on, Lord. (laughs) That's not the kind of answer I'm looking for. That is not the kind of response I was hoping for. Uh, This is not the kind of thing I really want. Lord, that's not what I prayed for. How can a merciful God do such a thing? How can a loving God allow wicked people like the Babylonians to punish his own people, the apple of his eye? How can God allow bad things to happen to good people? And God's answer come in chapter 2, verse 4, is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. Paul and Peter. The Lord said, look, see how is puffed up, talking about Babylon. His desires are not upright. I know that. But the righteous will live by faith. In fact, that sentence converted Martin Luther. I'm going to tell you more about that in a minute. The righteous shall live by faith. God is saying to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, listen, I understand times are tough. Times are bad, spiritually speaking, but it's going to get worse. (laughs) I don't know about you. That's not what I want to hear. Oh, but the righteous shall live by faith. Yes, God is going to punish Babylon. Yes, God is going to take care of the arrogant. Yes, God will judge the wicked, but He's going to protect His faithful ones. No matter what happens, no matter what the future brings, no matter what suffering ahead, no matter what the economy does and does not do, no matter what the politicians do or do not do, no matter what goes down, Habakkuk, you must understand that I'm in control of history, that I sit on the throne of the rim of the universe, that I will never forsake the faithful. In fact, God answers Habakkuk's question regarding unanswered prayer. He does. You say, how? By teaching him a very important lesson. Listen, I 
pray to God that everyone here, whether you're young or old, doesn't matter, that you would learn that same lesson. So listen to it very carefully. He said, um, when you see strange things happening all around you, don't complain, but ask, what is God teaching me through this? What is there in my life that I need to correct? What am I doing wrong? What level is my faith in? Don't become bewildered when you see all that or filled with doubt. Don't foam at the mouth. Don't join the chorus of those who sing blame to God when things go bad and never thank Him when things are good. (laughs) He said, you must trust that when God delays the answer to prayer, it is because He's dealing with selfishness among His own people that God is dealing with a national and corporate and individual sins, that God is dealing with things in our lives that are not supposed to be there, that God is purifying his church, that God wants to prepare His church for great and mighty things, that God is working both judgment and righteousness for His bigger purpose. Now I come to the prayer itself. Look at chapter 3. I want you to see three things here that I want to share with you very briefly. First, in verses 1 and 2, you see it's a prayer of humility. It's a prayer of humility. And then in verses 3 to 15, you see there is a prayer of adoration of God and what He has done. And thirdly, you see that prayer focus now is on God, not even a revival, but on God Himself, verses 16 to 19. First, He starts with humility. He's coming to God, not talking about all the things that he has done or Israel has done for God. No, he is broken before God. He's in humility before God. Some of you are saying, well, where do you get humility here? Well, look at verse 1. He said, I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Let me tell you something. That word awe, I wish I can explain it to you in English. It's all-encompassing. I am literally speechless. I'm, I'm shattered. My knees are knocking. I'm, I'm absolutely in awe of you, O oh God. See, in the first chapter, Habakkuk was questioning God. He really was. God, why are you not answering my prayer? God, where are you when I need you? God, why don't you do something, God? God. Why is revival delayed? Why what I'm praying for is not coming about? Oh, beloved, let me tell you something. That between chapter 1 and chapter 3, something happened to the man Habakkuk. Something drastically has happened in his life. And it's the very thing that God wants in all of his children. I thank God for your services for God, but God cares more about the servant and his and her life than the service. God can do anything he wants to do. He can use anybody, but he cares deeply about you, your walk with him. And something drastically happened in this man's life, Habakkuk, between chapter 1 and chapter 3. What happened? He learned to take his mind and his eyes off of himself, off of the Israelites, and off of the Babylonians, and off all the stuff that's going on around him, and began to focus on God alone. 
Listen to me. As long as we are operating on a human level, as long as we compare the level of righteousness between the Israelites and the Babylonians, as long as he was comparing himself with others, something we tend to do, as long as he was concerned about who is worse than whom, he was asking God why. Why are you not answering my prayer? But once he took his eyes off his surroundings, once he took his eyes of who's up and who's down, as soon as he took his eyes off who's in and who's out, and he once placed his eyes squarely on the righteousness of God and who God is, then all of that other stuff melted away. Now, beloved, I know there are some people pray like that Pharisee that Jesus talks about that went to the temple and would say, oh, God, in comparison to Mr. Smith, I'm really much better. (laughs) Answer my prayer. Oh, Lord, in comparison to Mrs. Jones over there, I'm much better. Answer my prayer. Wrong. Wrong prayer. Wrong prayer. How to approach God will determine the effectiveness of your prayer. And beloved, if God is going to send a revival, it's not going to be because of how faithful we've been. It's because of the mercy and the grace of God. First, he came to the Lord in humility. And the second secret for effective prayer is adoration. In fact, the bulk of that chapter is prayer and adoration of who God is and what God has done. The word worship, we get it from the Latin root, worth-ship. What is God worth to you? When you're worshiping Him alone in the privacy of your prayer closet, what is God worth to you? What is God worth to you in your giving and in the finances that He blessed you with? What is He worth to you? A few dollars? What is God worth to you? as you worship Him publicly, as you worship Him privately, what is He worth to you? And yet most people, when they pray and they want to come to God, they want to come to God with their grocery list. Lord, give me five of this, six of that, ten of the other, and give me two of this one. There's nothing wrong with coming to the Lord with your needs. Don't misunderstand me. But entrance into the throne room of God is to adore who He is, is expression of what he is worth to you. And some would say, well, yeah, no, 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 I'm supposed to give thanks. Lord, thank you, thank you for this and thank you for that. Let me get back to my grocery list. He knows our heart. He knows the depth of who we are. And that is why the psalmist said, it is only when you delight yourself in the Lord will he give you the desires of your heart. Listen, When you spend time delighting yourself in the Lord, delighting yourself in who He is, delighting yourself in what He has done, delighting yourself in His character, delighting yourself in the fact that He's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, delighting yourself in His mercy and in His grace, when you do that, you are going to find yourself asking only for those things that delight His heart. In other words, your heart will be delighted in what delights His heart, and His heart 
will be the light of what delights your heart and there'll be an in and out connection with God. Somebody might say, Michael, I don't know how to delight myself in the Lord, and that's a legitimate question. I've been there. Let me tell you, I testify to you, if you ask God the Holy Spirit, Lord, teach me how to delight myself in the Lord, I can tell you the Holy Spirit will answer that prayer. If you genuinely ask Him to teach you how to delight yourself in Him, He will do that. It was a prayer of humility before God. It was a prayer of adoration of God. And thirdly, Habakkuk's prayer was about God, His work, His righteousness, His glory, who He is, that in His mercy, He will do whatever He wants to do. He recites all the things that could have gone wrong. No olives, no grapes, no sheep. That's about everything the economy was dependent on, right? The New York Stock Exchange collapsed. People lost their life savings. He didn't say it happened, but he said it may happen, but I'm still going to delight myself in the Lord, right? That's what he's saying. Oh, he's no longer praying, oh God, the Israelites deserve your mercy because they are your chosen people. That was his prayer first. No more. No more. He's not doing it because of this, Lord, or because of the other thing. No, 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 no. No more. Because of who you are. You know, the word revival actually means somebody be dead and becomes alive. That's really what it means, revive. It is when a spiritually dead person becomes alive through the power of the Holy Spirit, we say a revival has taken place in the life of this person. And the mass revivals that we read about and know about, it was just a lot of people were coming to Christ all at the same time. And beloved, when we see people turning to Christ, the dead spirits, and the Bible says we're all born with dead spirits, but then the Holy Spirit comes and breathes life. We become alive with Him. When that begins to happen and we begin to see it, we know we've got a revival. Now, some people think a revival is that you get a big stadium, 50,000 people, and they're singing praises to God. Nothing wrong with that. We need more of that. But that's not revival. But when the dead spirits begin to be revived and become alive in Christ, and people begin to repent of their sins, confess their sins, and receive the forgiveness from His hand, you will know we have a revival. You see, as long as Habakkuk was concerned about his ministry, his effectiveness, what who he is and what he's done, his country, Israel, and the Babylonians and what is happening and who's what and who's where, revival was not coming. But once he took his eyes off all of that stuff and began to focus on God and his glory alone, he began to see even the Babylonian exile as part of God's plan to bring about that revival. He began to see even the dark days as in God's plan to bring about the revival. He was praying for a revival in the midst of darkness. And history does tell us that revivals often took place in the midst of the darkest days. Reformation in the 1500s took place in the times of the darkest period in church history. 
During that time, the church in Europe was in utter disgrace, in utter darkness. Ignorance was rampant. The Bibles were only in Latin, and they were chained to the lectern, so nobody could read them except the priests. Superstition was the norm. They worshipped saints and not God, and they consulted demon-possessed for their life. Luther himself at some point hated God. But then he read the words that are New Testament that are quoted here from Habakkuk, that the righteous shall live by faith, and he was quickened in his spirit and was thoroughly converted to Christ, and he led the Reformation. Fast forward 200 years in America, Jonathan Edwards had just succeeded his grandfather as a minister of the Church of Northampton in Massachusetts. During that time, there was complete breakdown in the families. Sexual immorality in America was rampant. Uh, church leaders were fighting with each other. Oh, but there was a small remnant who prayed that God would send an awakening, and God chose that man. Same thing happened in England in what we call the Wesleyan Revival, which, by the way, God really used a man by the name of George Whitfield. The two Wesley brothers, John and Charles, came in later. In fact, the reason we know so much about them is because John Wesley wrote a whole lot of books and he started a movement. Whitfield didn't. And yet Whitfield was far greater preacher and used mightily of God. He would be speaking in the fields of tens of thousands of people without a microphone. And before he even started his first sentence, people would be weeping over their sin and repenting and turning to the Lord. Dark days in England at that time. Every second house was called a grog shop. Do you know what a grog is? <laughs> Liquor. Every second house. There were so many kids who did not know who their fathers were. That's how England was at that time before the God sent this great revival. In fact, preachers in the pulpits in the Church of England were preaching Confucius and Muhammad, not Jesus. Sounds familiar? And God began to move on a man by the name of George Whitfield. And then, of course, the Wesley brothers followed, and Charles was writing the hymns and the songs, and, and England was transformed for Christ. About 154 years ago, in New York City, at that time, the United States of America was in a grip of economic depression. God moved on the life of a businessman. He was no preacher. He was a businessman by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere that he announced in the newspapers that he's going to have a prayer meeting for people to come and pray for America, pray for a revival, that God would send a Holy Spirit revival. And he rented a room, had 11 seats in it. Very few people showed up. Very few people showed up. Week after week after week, he never gave up, and he continued to pray with the few people that came. And then in time, God began to honor that humble prayer. And then the room overflowed into the church halls all over Manhattan, and from Manhattan all over New York, and then all over the United States. A revival broke, and that was the last time America has seen a genuine Holy Spirit awakening. The one thing that prayers for revival had in common is the words of Habakkuk. In wrath, remember mercy. It's not because we're good to you, God. We have been faithful to you, God. 
we have done this for you, God. No, but in wrath, remember mercy. Can we say that together? In wrath, remember mercy. This is Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Heard on the radio, daily podcast, online, through Leading the Way's mobile app, and much more. Get additional information by visiting ltw.org. You may not realize it, but Dr. Yusuf is the founding pastor of Atlanta's The Church of the Apostles, a growing church with the vision to reach the lost and equip the saints for the work of ministry, using media as a key tool. People listen to Leading the Way on radio stations like this one in the US, United Kingdom and Australia, plus other outreaches of ministry touch people across six continents in 26 languages. May we encourage you to take time to learn more about the many other ministries of Leading the Way happening throughout the world by simply going to the website and clicking around. I know you'll be encouraged. ltw.org. That's ltw.org. And you can always speak with one of our ministry representatives when you call 1-300-133-589. That's 1-300-133-589. Make plans to join Dr. Yusuf again next time when he passionately proclaims uncompromising truth on Leading the Way. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.